Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Dan and Joe Sports Show. As always, I'm Dan. And I'm Joe. Uh, Joe, we had a really great PGA Championships last weekend. It was so good to see a important professional event, and I was just glued to it. I mean, it, it was fantastic golf. And what made it even better is that it was actually really close. I mean, towards the end of the day, you had a lot of heavy hitters on the leaderboard and a lot of guys I'd never really heard of before. So, I mean, up there at the top, you had uh, Brooks Kepka and Jason Day. And then you had some younger guys like Colin Morikawa and uh, Champ and Scott Scheffler that I'd never really heard of that really played some fantastic golf. And it wasn't that anyone really gave it away. It's that Morikawa just played a stunning round, uh, really capped off by his tee ball on number 16 that got to a par four and one and then made the equal to kind of shut it out. Yeah, that, that was very impressive. You know, I'm the type of golf fan that I will tune in to um, the major tournaments, especially on a Sunday, especially in the middle of the pandemic where – I'm eager to watch any type of competitive life sports. And, you know, the part that I saw towards the end of the, the final round, um, watching uh, Morikawa, um, I really didn't notice that there were not many spectators there. I thought that, you know, this sport is perfect for social distancing. Um, I know we talked about on the show back in March and April that we really didn't even see a reason that golf couldn't be played even back then, you know, just the way the sport's set up. But um, I was just impressed with uh, Morikawa, how he was able to separate himself from the pack uh, on that 16th tee shot, as you referenced, because it looked like we were destined for um, a playoff with multiple players, um, something that would have been somewhat historical, and we didn't get that far because he was so clutch and capped off his first uh, major championship. Yeah, Joe, very impressive young player. And what really kind of, you know, uh, it's a little bit of a cliche in golf, but I really think that it showed up on Sunday that the players who know the courses tend to do the best. And I don't think that you can underlook the fact that Colin Morikawa was a Cal golfer, Cal Berkeley, and the PGA Championship was played at the Municipal Course in San Francisco. So that's a course that, playing, being at Cal, I'm sure that he and his friends from the golf team probably played many, many times. And he obviously had a great familiarity with the course, and you could see it from that 16th tee ball shot. Yeah, that's definitely a good point, Dan. He looked uh, more than comfortable out there on that course. Uh, I wanted to ask you, though, I feel like the sport of golf is definitely – you know, longing for um, the emergence of that next um, star player, superstar player, who can consistently dominate some of these major championships. You know, in Tiger's twilight years, we've seen guys like Rory and uh, Jordan Speed kind of flirt with that um, category. But do you think that Morikawa could be that guy? How does he compare to some of these other guys that have kind of been that one-hit wonder? Well, Joe, I, mean, I think Morikawa is uh, certainly someone that could be that next guy. And that was just an like absolute great four days of golf that he played. And he ended up beating Jason Day when Jason Day was playing near his best golf to win. And that is a tall order indeed. 
And he ended up uh, hanging in there long enough for Kepka to fall by the wings, which the way Kepka's been playing in majors lately was not something that I was expecting. I still had him as my betting favorite going into Sunday. Um, Morikawa definitely showed a lot of poise. There's a lot of talent there. I don't see him as someone that's going to get shaken easy. But I'll tell you the person that watching on Sunday that I'm looking to as a possible superstar is Matthew Wolf. The guy's 21 years old, and he was right in there with the leaders until the very end on Sunday. I think he ended up finishing the tied for fourth. But there were times on Sunday where he was tied for the lead. Kid's 21 years old, and he's got a really interesting swing style where he only basically ends up on one leg every single time, which and he kind of hops when he hits, which is something that any golf coach would probably tell you is wrong, but hard for him to argue when the guy's hitting 350 yards and putting darts on the greens. Yeah. What is Wolf's background? Did he play uh, college in the U.S.? I believe that Matthew Wolf is uh, – he, he's from the U.S. And I think he's still a current college golfer. So, I mean, he's 21, so he's pro. So, I'm not – he might have just stopped playing college golf. I'll have to, like, get back and be a little bit more on him because that was the first time I'd ever seen him. But he was the guy that really I, I came away from it looking at this guy could be one of the future stars of golf. Yeah, gotcha. And then, like I said, it was Champ, too. Champ's 22 years old, also a really strong golfer, and they were all guys from California, and Scheffler was, too. So I think you're seeing in golf right now, there's definitely a huge renaissance of younger players. And then you got a lot of guys in their late 20s, early 30s that are just strong contenders all times. Your Kepkas, Jordan Spieth, Rory, uh, Jason Day's having, like, a good renaissance. And then DeChambeau was in there for a while on Sunday, um, and I was looking at him until about the ninth or 10th hole. He had at times been tied for the lead, and then he kind of fell by the wayside. So, I mean, you definitely, if, if Morikawa didn't play the round of his life and hit that shot, you could have had a playoff that would have included Jason Day and DeChambeau and maybe uh, this Matthew Wolf as long as Morikawa. So it would have been very interesting. Yeah, for sure. But, yeah, definitely a guy to look for. And if he plays like that, he can win multiple majors. But the thing that I took away from it is you've got some really great players up and coming right now who can challenge some of the more um, standard players in there right now because I thought that, interestingly, Kepka and then Justin Thomas were non-factors in this one, which surprised me. Yeah, um, that was definitely surprising. Um, Dustin Johnson, you know, is a guy that came really close to winning the tournament. Um, he was one that was yeah. definitely, you know, on my radar heading into the weekend. Um, what did you think of Tiger's performance? Uh, it was very lackluster, and I think that it showed that he was a little out of practice, Joe. Uh, I think they showed a stat up that since he won the Masters last year, he's probably played in only like one-tenth of the uh, tournaments that he's been offered to play in. And so I know he's trying to rest himself a little bit. He's got that history of injuries, but I think he needs to play a little bit more for himself to have a chance to win any of these majors coming off this season. Yeah, I mean, for sure. I think that, you know, practice and repetition is key, uh, even for him. You know, watching Tiger Woods in the twilight of his career, you know, it's like watching any other great athlete as they're kind of, you know, getting towards the end. I mean, obviously with golf, you know, he can play for a longer time but as far as his uh you know twilight years of having a chance to win a major we're kind of in that you know strata 
because of who he is. You know, it's kind of like Michael Jordan. Everybody is going to, you know, follow him and, you know, pay attention when he is in any type of tournament, whether it's a major or just a regular season, you know, um, tournament. But, um, you know, we'll see kind of where things go from here. Um, I'll say more than anything, I was just happy to see a major being played after a long layoff. I was, too. I was happy to see a major being played, and I was happy to see it be well played. Uh, you don't see PGAs very often where the winner's at about 17 under, and there's a lot of guys that are up there, too. And so the fact that it was so competitive, and then it had a new winner, and it wasn't Brooks Kepka winning it again, I thought it was good for the sport. And like I said, I think if you're a golf fan right now, uh, of course you want to see Tiger do well, but there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of health to the sport with a lot of really good young talent coming up right now. And especially now, you know, with the trend of society, this was this past weekend in California was a golden opportunity for golf to kind of be at center stage in the sports world. Uh, I know you've got you know, Major League Baseball going on and the NBA uh, restart, but at the same time, you don't have to compete against uh, preseason NFL football, which has been an issue, you know, always. You know, for somebody like me, you know, on a Saturday or Sunday in early August, I'm probably thinking about who the Saints are playing their first uh, preseason game. But with that, you know, not happening this year, I was able, you know, to be completely glued in. I think there were a lot more people you know, the usual that were especially up into that major. Yeah, and I mean, you know, even myself, I'm a guy who always watches uh, Sundays of majors. I don't necessarily always watch the other days. And this tournament, I watch every single day of it because I was that engrossing and that happy to see golf being played again. Right. So, Joe, uh, moving forward to something that's not being played, and that's the Big Ten the Pac-12 seasons. Uh, of course, everyone's been hearing a lot about it this week. Uh, of course, it started last Sunday night. You started to hear the inklings of it. Uh, some stories came out. Looks like the Big Ten and the Pac-12 are going to hang it up this season. And you had the mass response from starting with Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields also supporting it, a lot of other guys. I know Najee Harris was a, was a person on it uh, with the hashtag, we want to play. And, of course, they, they came up with their own uh, list of petitions they wanted, uh, things they looked for for the season to make it safe. And it was actually very well organized, and I was impressed by it. But ultimately, it fell upon deaf ears, at least when it came to the Big Ten Central Office and the Pac-12 Office headed by Larry Scott, and the season got shut down. That's right, and, and it was very odd to me, the timing of all of this and just the lack of explanation that we've heard from these conferences like the Pac-12 and the Big Ten. And what I mean by that is just a couple of weeks ago, um, actually um, on August the 5th when we had our last show, um, we were talking about how the Big Ten had just around that time released their updated schedules for their conference games. And we were breaking it down with our friend Carrie and trying to predict how they would fare in 2020. So why release those schedules at that point if there was a chance that you might cancel the fall season? What happened since then to change that determination? Um, there's been speculation that maybe this has something to do with the outbreak that we saw with the St. Louis Cardinals and them being shut down for several weeks in baseball. 
Um, I've also heard that due to um, the COVID restrictions that the Big Ten Conference had in place, a lot of coaches just thought it was not going to be possible to be able to play the season within those guidelines. But at the same time, I would like to hear more information and disclosure about exactly what transpired within the last week to go from optimism to a shutdown. Well, Joe, my understanding of what scared the Big Ten so much is apparently a player on Indiana's football team uh, got a bad case of coronavirus, and it resulted in him being uh, found positive for myocarditis, which, of course, is a, is a heart condition that can happen with any kind of uh, heavy flu that you get. And I think that once they saw that this is something that can have an effect on the heart that's more than just a couple weeks and could follow you for the rest of your life, it made some, uh, some people nervous in Big Ten country. And, of course, in the Pac-12, they kind of follow the Big Ten's lead on this. So I think that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back on this. Well, I know we talked about this, you know, this afternoon when we were preparing for the show. My two responses to that would be, first, why is it that the doctors and the people that are giving the advice to the Big Ten and Pac-12 conference have that opinion but the experts that are giving advice to the SEC, the ACC, and these other conferences apparently have a completely different opinion and are not concerned about you know that risk. That puzzles me. And then second, I also find it very contradictory, and I don't think enough people are talking about this, that the sport of football is inherently a dangerous sport. There has been controversy for years you know, I hate to admit it sometimes when we talk about concussions, mm-hmm. CTE, but yet we never shut down the sport for those risks. Why are we shutting it down for this minimal risk here? Uh, for the November presidential election, Jack. No. I, I, you know, I, I think what it is is uh, – the Big Twelve, the, the Big Ten, the Pac Twelve, been on the fence about this for a long time, and they were looking for a reason to shut it down. And when this myocarditis story came out, they kind of attached themselves onto this, and they just kind of naturally assumed that the other conferences would go with them on it. And what I've seen with specifically the ACC and the Big Twelve, they both have independent uh, Duke epidemiologists that have said this is something that we've known about for a long time. And then myocarditis is not something that's limited specifically to coronavirus. People that get the flu get it. I mean, it's something that's known to, to, to happen with respiratory illnesses that, that are transmitted. And the, this is not a reason to shut it down. I mean, you're not getting any higher level of myocarditis with this than you would with any other kind of flu. So I think they're looking at this as, you know, saying that's a little bit of a red herring right there. And, and I think it's interesting that, you know, both of these conferences are choosing guys from Duke. And I don't know who the Big Ten and the Pac-12 have, and they haven't had guys go on record like what they've had in the ACC and the Big 12. And I certainly trust Duke doctors. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And another thing, Dan, is just, I think, in the long line of inconsistencies here, I know you and I were talking about this also previously, if there's such a risk to play football, how are you able to open the college campuses back for in-person classes? 
on Big Ten campuses and Pac-12 campuses. I don't understand that at all. And some of the precautions that you see taking place throughout the sports world to me are sometimes more dangerous than the actual sports itself. And what I mean by that is if you cancel the games in the season for these players, a lot of them have already been training and they've been working out. So if you cancel the season, they're no longer going to be working out and training as much. They're not going to be playing games on Saturday nights, so instead they're going to be out partying probably and spreading the virus potentially. I mean, there's that risk. And then also I was reading that I referenced earlier how the St. Louis Cardinals um, had to set out a couple of weeks with the outbreak for the virus on their team. Well, apparently, um, out of precaution, the, um, the team decided to rent cars for every single player on the team and let each player individually drive um, on you know, the dangerous interstate all the way from St. Louis to Chicago to play the White Sox this weekend in lieu of taking an airplane or a team bus. And I personally think that's more dangerous than the virus itself. And so there's just things we're doing that just does not add up here. Yeah, and if you think about it, like, if you actually want the NFL players to wear those masks they were proposing, I know J.J. Watt was very vocal about this. I mean, it's such a physical sport that if you were to lose your breath playing it, then you're going to put yourself where you're not running at your usual level. You might put yourself at an angle that is not the usual way you lift your body up, and you could get injured that way. Plus, I mean, you might just run out of breath and get sick that way too. So I definitely think that you can't really wear the mask and play football. No, I mean, you can't. Um, and, you know, I, I, I would be interested to know if studies are going to be done on, you know, what it's like to, over time, you know, inhale the CO2, you know, the, the carbon dioxide over and over again. You know, is that some type of health risk? I, I just don't know. There, there are a lot of questions that I have about the whole ordeal. Yeah, I mean, the biggest one that you said, the biggest fallacy I have is that it's safe to open a 30,000, 40,000-person campus yet it's not safe to have 24 guys on the field at once. Let's say that you're not having, you know, if you're not having fans in the stands, then you got 24 guys on the field and then however many dress, I think it's like 50 you're able to actually dress and be on the sidelines, right? Maybe an 85-person roster, but I'm not sure that all of them are usually on the sidelines. So whatever it is, you're saying it's safe for 40,000 people to be there then assuming no fans, not safe for 200 people to be somewhere. That makes no sense. Well, another thing about that I'll say is that, you know, some people might try to play devil's advocate with us and say, you know, you got to open the schools back. You know, education is first and foremost, you know, the most important. And I totally get that. But we all know, I mean, let's not be naive, what comes around with a college environment. You know, students are going to be socializing. And so you're opening the door for that. You're not restricting that when you reopen the campus. And so it's totally contradictory to reopen the in-person campus and socialization, but to not feel like it's safe enough to reopen uh, football. Well, and, and I personally think, Joe, that if you think it's safe enough to open the campus period, then you shouldn't cancel the other fall sports either. I think that if you play volleyball or if you play, uh, I think, I'm trying to think of other ones that are, that are 
that are fall. I think volleyball, I think track and field, any of those, if you can, if you can come to campus, you should be able to play those too. Yeah, without a doubt. Um, yeah, it's the soccer that's being canceled. Yeah. Um, just a lot of sports that are affected. And, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I worry about how this is going to impact the spring and winter sports in the Big Ten and the Pac-12 and the Mountain West and other conferences that have made this decision. Because you think about how much revenue college football brings about to the campus for the rest of the athletic department. At the point that you cancel or postpone the football season, do you actually have enough revenue to proceed with the other sports? I feel like everybody is going to suffer because of this decision. No, there's no doubt about that. And what the NCAA can't afford is to cancel another March Madness because that's where they make like 90% of their revenue every year. I think the only sports they have that actually make money are college football, college basketball, and college baseball. And the only two that are actually organized by the NCAA are the College World Series and the, and the March Madness. And so if you don't have those again, then it'll be two years in a row where they don't have it, and they're going to be seriously in the red on that. No, precisely, Dan. And that's actually a perfect segue to um, another thing I wanted to bring up. And I do wonder about, you know, the future of college athletics as we come through this period. You know, I wonder if the NCAA college sports, if we know it, are going to survive, um, you know, the extent of the pandemic. Because you think about how there's been so much controversy over the years about players being paid, about whether, you know, they're student athletes or whether they're actually employees for the university. Um, you know, we know about the case from about five or six years ago when uh, some of the football players at Northwestern University tried to start a labor union. And, you know, there was a lot of controversy there. Um, I understand that legally um, at public universities, you really can't have um, unions for student athletes. That's not going to work out. But I do wonder if we might see the creation of either some type of trade association to represent the interests of the players, or if the players continue to be frustrated with not only the handling of the pandemic, but just the NCAA in general, will, will we see the advent of some type of alternative league similar to in college basketball? We've seen a lot of uh, five-star recruits opt out of playing collegiate basketball under the NCAA umbrella, and instead more and more guys are either playing internationally overseas or they're playing for the G League uh, under the guise of the NBA for a year and then entering the NBA draft. So I'm kind of wondering about the future of college sports as we know it. Well, Joe, I certainly think that uh, there's a possibility that you see the Power 5 break sooner rather than later. And I really thought the decision to shut down March Madness last year might have really hastened that uh, that exodus because, I mean, they kind of came out of nowhere. Miles Zimmer didn't tell anything about it, and everyone was planning on playing it. And, I mean, I think the coaches found out after ESPN had put it out there, and the athletic directors found out after an ESPN story came out. So they, didn't, they weren't even up front about that. And so I see that as being an issue that, you know, with all the, this legislation going down that athletes can profit off their name use and likeness, and you think talking about a players' union for college football players, 
that's not going to be able to work for anyone that's not a power five school. They're not going to be able to afford that. So I think that with all these changes happening, it seems like now is the time for a separation between the power five and the NCAA. Yeah, I've never really understood um, with the college football playoff with BCS exactly how the NCAA has the ability to, you know, impose punishments and get involved and kind of pick and choose what they're involved in. You know, think about how the NCAA of the collegiate sports, they don't actually govern the college football playoff. You know, they stay out of the tournament. They stay out of the selection committee, all of that. However, somehow, they're conveniently always able to impose punishment for schools that participate in that sport. So never really understood how that worked. And so it's just a laundry list, I think, of issues we've seen over the years. This seems kind of like the tipping point that may lead to some seismic, um, drastic change, a seismic shift, if you will. It may be conference realignment or um, the break off of the well, Joe, speaking of conference realignment, and this is kind of a new story, but I saw today that uh, Justin Fields is spreading some kind of petition amongst Big Ten teams uh, for them to try and seek uh, the teams to kind of be for themselves this season and if they want to play to kind of seek outside uh, competition. What, what have you heard about this? Yeah, it's that, you know, the Big Ten schools can independently make the decision to play football this fall if they wanted to and to, you know, see if they could find another conference that could host them for this season or see if they could find enough teams that are willing to play them on the schedule. Um, you know, I don't know how much traction this has, but we've seen, you know, both Ohio State and Nebraska be a little bit more vocal um, about their disdain for the Big Ten's uh, unilateral decision. I think that they wanted a little bit more say um, in that decision before it was made. Um, You know, with spring football, I wanted to ask you, how realistic is it that spring football um, could actually work? Uh, Joe, to me, it seems unrealistic. I mean, frankly, you get into the spring, you have baseball, you have March Madness. Basketball takes a big stage. Um, for you know, people up north, hockey becomes a, a deal. The Frozen Four, and it's just to me, you're not going to have enough break between the regular fall season. Football is a game where you have to have six months between it because there's just so many injuries. It's such a taxing experience for your body that there's no way you can go and play two seasons back to back the way it would have to be. Uh, like I said, it interferes with all the usual timing of bowl games, of the granddaddy of them all, the Rose Bowl, all these kind of things that happen every year. And like I said, I mean, if you make a decision to go to spring football, then that's the way you have it for a while unless you slowly taper back. So to me, I just don't think that it's feasible. And the biggest issue you have is you're going to lose out on all of the best players because if you got a guy that's given a, a round one grade before the season starts, why on earth would they play in spring when that's when they're going to be drafted? That's when they're working out in front of these NFL teams. And if they already know they're going to get gotten in the first round, they're not going to play because they don't have the time to heal if that injury happens. 
I mean, someone tears their ACL in November, they can actually come and play the next NFL season. If they tear their ACL in March, they're not playing the next NFL season, and they may have had a top five grade, but they might draft in the second or third round. So, to me, it just seems like you're going to lose out on getting to watch the best guys. Like, I know Trevor Lawrence has seemed like quite the upstanding individual. He wants to play a lot. He's put himself out there. But suddenly Clemson decides to play for a spring season. Even someone with the will to play that he has, would he make that risk? I don't think so. Yeah, I would probably go ahead and put um, the chances or percent of the chance of Justin Fields playing the spring season for Ohio State in about negative 100. I do not see that happening. And you're going to see a lot of replacement caliber players, I think, in college football if there is a spring season, which would be unfortunate. Um, two other points I'll say real quick. You brought this point up to me earlier. I thought it was outstanding. You know, how would you determine, you know, who is the actual national champion if you have a fall season and a spring season? You know, is there going to be controversy or are you going to hand out two separate national championship trophies for the college football playoff? And then the second thing, um, I do kind of think that this spring football idea is largely somewhat of a red herring. I think that a lot of these conferences and schools are using this kind of as a bargaining chip to prevent and with leverage to prevent uh, some of their best players from transferring and heading to the SEC or Big 12. That's right, Joe. I think they're using it as a carrot on the stick to keep their players in-house. And speaking of carrots on sticks, we'll be discussing all of these things in our next part of this episode coming up very shortly. I want to thank everybody for listening to the Dan and Joe Sports Show. You can find us on Spotify. Just search the Dan and Joe Sports Show, and we'll be there. And just find all the old episodes. And as always, I'm Dan. And I'm Joe.